Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Jesus heals a paralytic man on the Sabbath. He is challenged by the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. Then if you look at verse 18, it says, because he claimed equality with God, they were all the more seeking to kill him. Then he talks about further Jesus does where his power resonates from the Father. His authority is given to him by the Father. And in that context, he says this in verse 39. To those who had the Old Testament, he says this. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you today for the hope that we have in Christ. Father, I thank you for the privilege of putting my faith and trust in Christ alone through faith and the finished work upon the cross. Father, we thank you for that moment in time where Christ left the headquarters of heaven and came to this earth. And we're thankful that the the whole of Scripture points to him as our Savior. So, Father, I pray that in my weakness today you would be strong. And now we ask you, please, to speak to us through your word. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just in case you haven't heard, we're expecting our second grandchild. It's going to be a little girl, and we are very, very excited. We get a weekly update on the progress of the the baby, uh, approximately how much it weighs, how long it is, all of those details. But every few weeks, as we did this week, we get a sonogram picture. Now, now we kind of think she's going to be pretty shy because in the sonogram picture, she had her hands up where you couldn't see her face. And even the best of sonogram pictures are helpful, but they are limited views of the one who is to come. Once that baby girl arrives, we won't be standing around looking at sonogram pictures. We will have a full view of the blessing that God has given. Well, in the Old Testament, you find pictures, promises, and previews of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They are helpful, but they're limited, aren't they? 
But when Christ came, all of that made sense. All of those features and all of those hints and foreshadows and types all come together and they they resonate in our minds that this is the one who was promised by God. And so for the next few weeks leading up to the celebration of the birth of Christ, I, I want us to focus on those Old Testament pictures, promises, and previews of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Just as we read in our text a moment ago, he said to the religious people of his day, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life and these are they who testify of me. Something we have to keep in mind in the time of Jesus and the apostles, when they referred to the scriptures, They referred to what we refer to as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. When Paul preached from the scriptures about Jesus, he preached from what we know as the Old Testament. When the writers of scripture were writing the story of Jesus, reflecting on him fulfilling those prophecies, all they had basically was the Old Testament. There is enough reference and picturing of Jesus in the Old Testament to bring people to Christ, to help us understand who he is and what the will of the Father is. And so that's what Jesus was referring to. You search the scriptures, you look through from Genesis to Malachi, and all through there you find helpful images and pictures of who I am. What he was saying is, I am the living, eternal fulfillment of all of those pictures, promises, prophecies, and previews that you have spent so much time indulging in. So what I want us to do is to begin today by looking at what is known as the law, the first five books of the Bible, uh, also known as the Pentateuch, but I'm pretty sure that's not a word any of us have used this week, so we're going to call it the law. You'll hear the Old Testament referred to as the law and the prophets or the law and the Psalms. It was being gathered and used in worship. Primarily the law are the first five books that are the foundation for the rest of the Bible. So I want us to look at at five different glimpses and pictures of the coming Messiah that we find in these initial books in what we call the Old Testament. So first of all, I want us to see in Genesis 3.15 that the horror of sin points to the hope of a Savior. The horror of sin points to the hope of a Savior. In Genesis chapter 2, you'll recall that Adam and Eve were placed there, created by God, in the Garden of Eden. And they were commanded that of every tree in the garden they could freely eat of its fruit, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. That brings us to the scene of chapter 3. Satan in the form of a serpent comes into the garden. He comes there to tempt Eve. 
And the way he begins to tempt her is he begins to call into question the very words that God had spoken. Did you know that's a constant strategy he has used from then until our day? Taking the words that are clear that God has spoken and beginning to twist them and pervert them to say things that God never intended to say or to remove things that God meant to be heard. And so he begins to ask Eve some questions in Genesis chapter 3. He, he says, has God said to you that you cannot eat of any of the fruit in this garden? He, he begins to misquote the words of God. And she says, no, we can eat of all the trees of the garden except for the tree of knowledge and good and evil because in the day that we eat thereof we will surely die. Notice what it says in verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see how he twisted that? You'll be like God. You know what one of the problems with our society is? People think they're God. The problem is they can't tell the difference between good and evil. We live in a day where good is evil and evil is good. Why? Because they've bought the lie of the garden here. They, they don't think they're, they think they're indestructible and they are sovereign and in control. So when the woman saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to eat, she took of the fruit and she ate. And then she gave to her husband Adam and, and he ate and immediately their eyes were open. They realized that they were naked and they began to hide from God and began to cover their sin by clothing themselves with fig leaves. Isn't this a graphic picture of what sin does to us? Sin causes us to try to hide and try to cover it up. And then the next thing happens. God comes in the cool of the day in the garden and he asks them the question in verse 13. Verse 9, where are you? Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit, sovereign God of the universe, there's no question about our physical location. God constantly knows where we are. He knows where you are today. You're not here by accident. He, he drew you here. He wasn't asking them to identify and play the GPS for him so he could locate them. He was wanting to make them aware of their spiritual condition. Where are you? 
So Adam said to him, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Not only do we try to hide and cover it up, but what's the next thing we do? We blame somebody else. Nothing's changed, has it? Satan tempts us the same way. We respond the same way. We react the same way. We hide. We cover it up. We blame somebody else. We're like the little girl that that came home with her report card. All she had on it were D's and F's. Her dad looked at it and said, young lady, what do you have to say for yourself? And she said, well, dad, what do you think caused that? My heredity or my environment? Why? We blame somebody else, don't we? And so he says, God, it's that woman you put in the garden. Who was he really blaming? Was he blaming the woman? No, he was blaming God, wasn't he? You made me this way. You put her in my life. If you had never put the woman in the garden, I would be fine. It wasn't my idea, it was her idea. And then what did Eve do? She began to blame the serpent. God, it wasn't me. It was that snake, the the slithering tempter here. He was the one that caused me to do this. They began to blame one another. What a tragic scene. We'd like to think if it had been me, it would have been different. That's not true. We are all sinners by nature and by choice as a result of the fall of mankind described here in Genesis 3. So what a dark day after such a bright beginning. Listen to what the Lord says to the serpent in verse 14. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would think very few of us would be very fond of snakes and probably none of us have a fear of cows. I mean, a vicious cow. Have you ever heard that? No. But a snake is a reminder of that venomous temptation in the garden. Then God goes on, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, speaking to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know who that's talking about? Jesus. Even in that darkness of the fall of mankind, there is a glimmering light that brings a shadow of hope and the coming one that would be the seed of woman who would, who would bring about a crushing of the enemy's head. 
You see, if you're a Christian today, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. If you put your faith in Christ alone and you've trusted him for his grace and you've turned from your sin and turned to Christ, he has delivered you. You have been born again. You have been transformed and you are free from the penalty of sin. And if that's the case, then you are also growing and maturing as a believer and he is giving you victory and increased victory over the power of sin. But we still have to deal with sin, don't we? None of us arrive at sinless perfection this side of heaven. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're being set free from the power of sin. But thank the Lord, there is coming a day when we will be saved and delivered from the presence of sin. And we will be with him in eternity forever if we put our faith and trust in Christ. And it's there that we no longer have to deal with the tempter No longer do we have to deal with an enemy that seeks to bring us down. We go to the giver of life and we are set free from the one that wants to bring about death. We live in the truth. We're no longer tempted and torn apart by the one who brings about lies and is the father of all lies. Isn't that a beautiful truth? And the victory is promised here first in the first book of the Bible. Genesis 3, 15. Even at the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, deliverance is promised. God didn't make a mistake. Jesus and the atonement for our sin was planned from before the foundation of the earth, the Scripture says. Just as sin came through Adam, the Scripture tells us that life and salvation comes through Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at the description of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. If you look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. It begins with this wonderful truth in Romans 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have no peace with God, you have never met Jesus Christ. To receive Christ and to know Christ is to know the peace that you have with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that great news? Not when we cleaned up and got religious or began to improve our morality, but at the depths of the darkness of our sin, Christ died to redeem us. And that's how God expressed his love for us. But look at verses 17 through 21. For if by one man's trespass, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now here's the picture. 
as dark and terrible as our sin is, much more will we reign in life. It, it exceeds all of the darkness of our sin, the light that we live in through Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, speaking of Adam, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now that doesn't mean that all men will be saved. That means that salvation is available to all. It's universally available, but not universally applied. Only those who put their faith and trust in Christ will be partakers of this salvation. For as by one man's disobedience, it says in verse 19, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. One translation says grace superabounded. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that good news? And so there in Genesis, at the darkest moment of humanity, when, when sinners were hiding from God and covering up and blaming in the midst of all of that, there is a promise made that one will come that will change the whole course, that will bring life to all who put their faith and trust in him. So the horror of sin points to the hope of a Savior. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. It's not by works of righteousness, but by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then let's go to the second book in the Old Testament, Exodus. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, we discover something else very special about the, the previews and the pictures and promises of the Old Testament. The plague of death points to the promise of life. The plague of death points to the promise of life. Now, now I need to be up front with you. I'm not showing you every picture, every preview, every prophecy in the Old Testament. If we did that, no telling how long we'd be here. Now, I know you wouldn't get tired of listening. I might get tired of talking, but uh, I'm being silly there. But we could talk about Abraham. We could talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and how Joseph foreshadows who Christ. There are so many things in Genesis and then in Exodus. We, we see so much about Jesus. So I'm just picking one of many to show you today. But the plague of death points to the promise of life. Look at verse 21. of Exodus chapter 12. This is the 10th plague. You remember God called Moses and Aaron to go and bring deliverance from captivity for his people? He called Moses and Moses very eloquently said that he couldn't speak, send my brother, but they go knowing that I am who I am has sent them. And they 
enter into a battle of the gods with the false gods of Egypt. And one by one, each false god is defeated through the expression of a plague. The final plague being the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt. Again, another dark and grim scene where death sweeps through a nation. Notice what it says in verse 21 of Exodus chapter 12. In obedience to God, it says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop dip, bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the due doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. That's why it's called the, the Passover. Now just think of this, the plague of death. And in the midst of the plague of death, there is a promise of life. And so on that dark night, death began to sweep through Egypt. Screams and shouts of grief were heard throughout the land, but not among those who applied the blood. Do you see how that pictures Jesus as our Passover lamb? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, it says in Hebrews. The Bible declares that we are set free by the very blood of Jesus. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other with God and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. See, there's a difference between the Passover and the salvation we experience and that is that the blood cleanses us as well. So does that mean we will not physically die? No, we will all physically die, but we will only die once. It's appointed unto men to die and after that the judgment. But here's the good news. There is a second death for those who don't know Jesus. Those of us who have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior and have followed him and trusted him will die a physical death, but not a spiritual eternal death. Those who are born twice, as we could say, born of the flesh and born of the spirit, or born again, those who are born twice, who are believers, only die once. But those who are only born of the flesh die twice. They die physically and spiritually and eternally. Always dying, but never dead tormented and screaming throughout eternity. And so here we have the promise of life. 
So I ask you this morning, have you applied the blood of Christ to your life? Has it been applied there not by you but by God himself? Have you called out for forgiveness and for his salvation and has he applied the blood in your life to where when he looks at you, he sees the blood applied there. He sees the salvation to where death doesn't come to you through eternity. You are brought into life and the death angel of eternity passes over you. Have you come to that point in your life where you have that assurance? Without the blood of Jesus, we have no hope. So in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, verse 29, this image of the Passover lamb perhaps was in John the Baptist's mind when Jesus comes approaching him and he points and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What the blood of a lamb physically could not do, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done spiritually and eternally for us. And I challenge you to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it refers to Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. Do you see the picture there? Now rewind into the Old Testament. These were people living out life, uh, recording events, getting hints and blurry pictures of what was yet to come. But do you see the, the graphic beauty of Jesus as our Passover lamb and as the one who will crush the enemy's head in the plague of death? It points to the promise of life only in Jesus Christ. Then you come to the third book of the Bible, one that I've been spending much time reading and contemplating the truths therein. Leviticus. Most of us are familiar with Leviticus. This is usually where you stop reading through the Bible in a year, somewhere in Leviticus. But if you really take to heart the message of Leviticus, it shows you how holy God is, what God values and what God is displeased with. It's a beautiful picture of the heart of a holy God. And the one picture I want us to look at here that was somewhat of a blurry image but pointed to the clarity of who Jesus would be. Here in Leviticus chapter 16, we find the annual sacrifice points to eternal salvation. See, in the Old Testament, it was a very high and holy day known as the Day of Atonement. On that day, the people would gather in a solemn assembly before God. They would come recognizing the sin that they have committed, not just that day or that moment, but throughout the year. And they would gather with the desire to have an atonement made for that sin or a covering of that sin. This would be the one day that that innermost room would be used in the tabernacle later in the temple, the holy of holies. 
And on this one day, only one man could enter that place known as the Holy of Holies. He was not there to just represent himself, but he was to come clean before God through a very detailed process to offer sacrifices for himself, for the priesthood, for the tabernacle itself, and then for the people. And he would come to offer blood upon the altar, on the mercy seat, where the wings of the cherubim symbolize the presence of God. And as he entered and approached that, there would be a holy hush among the people. Because there was fear that somehow something had begun incorrectly, the sacrifice wasn't sufficient, the priest was not right with God in a holy standing with him, and, and perhaps he would be struck dead before the blood could be applied. That's why they had a, a cord tied around his ankle. So if he died there in the presence of pure holiness, no one else would be worthy to go in and get him. They would drag him out. And as he was there serving in the Holy of Holies, he, he had no seat to sit in because he was to work and to offer sacrifices for the sin of the people as prescribed by God in detail. He went in with one purpose and that was not to be seated but to be working and sacrificing and offering the blood on the mercy seat. And so we find in Leviticus 16.30, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And after that momentous occasion, after the covering over of their sin through the blood of the sacrifice, one year from that day, they would come and do it again. And a year later, they would do it again. And a year later, they would do it again. Repetitiously, why? It didn't completely satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. It was just covering over their sin. But this annual sacrifice points to the eternal salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the day of atonement. He functioned on the cross as both high priest and sacrifice, the book of Hebrews tells us. He alone was worthy to offer the sacrifice for all eternity of all of our sins and he alone was worthy to be the sacrifice so as high priest he entered into the presence of God through his crucifixion and he gave his very blood as the ultimate atonement not just covering over but the cleansing of his people from their sins. And unlike the high priests of the Old Testament who offered a yearly sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people, Jesus entered as the holy, blemishless, sinless sacrifice for all 
once for all, never to be repeated, never to be added to. Is that not amazing? And so we find the fulfillment described in Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9. verses 11 through 15, helps us to remember that 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 annual sacrifice points to eternal salvation. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I was lost in my sin. I had no hope. Because I was a sinner by nature and by choice, but Christ. You were in the same condition, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot or blemish to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He takes the the power and the penalty of sin and by his blood he gives us the promise of eternity. That annual sacrifice points to our eternal redemption and salvation. Then the fourth book in the Bible, Numbers. We're familiar with this one because if we survive Leviticus, then we get to Numbers. But both are filled with great things about God. Don't give up. We're going to look at a scene about a bronze serpent. What we're going to see in Numbers is the upheld bronze serpent points to the ultimate blessed Savior. Look with me at verse 4 of Numbers chapter 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. You'll recall they're wandering in the wilderness. They have doubted God. They have failed to step into the promised land. And so they have entered into the longest funeral march in history of 40 years for a generation to die off. And they are very discouraged on the way. Verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. You know one window into people's hearts? The way they talk about leaders that God has put in place is how they really feel about God. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes 
this worthless bread, the manna they were receiving from God. You brought us out from Egypt to die in the wilderness? No, he brought them out to go in the promised land. Their sin against God has brought about their death in the wilderness. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. These venomous vipers come and they begin to bite the people and they begin to fall and die. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What an image. People dying physically from a plague brought upon themselves by themselves. But that upheld bronze serpent points to the ultimate blessed Savior. Just as the bronze serpent was lifted up and brought physical healing, Jesus Christ brings eternal spiritual healing through being lifted up on the cross for our sins. This image is so important that in John chapter 3, Jesus brings it into a conversation he's having with one of the most religious men of his day. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness to dialogue with him about who he really is. It says in verse 2 of John chapter 3, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's not spoken by one of his disciples. That's spoken by someone that is in the group opposing him, the Sanhedrin. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about a new spiritual birth. All Nicodemus can think about is a physical birth, and he says, how can an old man like me enter into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, unless a man is born of the water and of the spirit, he has no hope and cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then to clarify this gift of life that comes only through Jesus, he points to the bronze serpent that is described in the book of Numbers. Verse 13, he's speaking to a man very schooled in the Old Testament, perhaps had this memorized, He says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's say the next verse together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We look past that image right before John 3.16, but doesn't that put it in a good perspective? The whole purpose of Christ's coming was for people to be saved and delivered from spiritual death and destruction. Just like the serpent was given to be lifted up to deliver people from physical destruction. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son who would be lifted up on the cross, shed his blood for us and provide salvation for us as the resurrected Lord. We look to him and we are saved. If you're looking anywhere but to Jesus for salvation today, you're looking in the wrong place. Don't look to yourself, don't look to your parents, don't look to your peers, look to Jesus. Don't look to the church, only look to Jesus through the church. The upheld bronze serpent points to the ultimate blessed Savior. Then we come to the fifth book. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, we find that the leader of the Exodus points to the Lord of eternity. The leader of the Exodus points to the Lord of eternity. Deuteronomy 18.15 Moses is speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And then it goes on. There's a promise of a coming prophet. Many people say Jesus was a good teacher and a prophet. He was, he was that, but he was much more than that. He didn't come just to declare he was a prophet only. The scripture reveals that he was a prophet priest and king. He was God himself. How does Moses picture Jesus for us? Well, Moses functioned in those three capacities. He came to the people as a prophet, delivering, thus saith the Lord, messages from God that he received directly from God to the people. He functioned as the priest at times, offering before the people that they might be forgiven and delivered as their intercessor and mediator before God. He functioned as a king in a time when there was no king among the people. That was his function. He functioned as prophet, priest, and king. But Jesus is our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Whatever Jesus says, we take heed to because when Jesus speaks, that's God speaking. 
when he functions as our priest, we receive great blessing from that because he's not only the high priest, but he's the perfect sacrifice that has been offered. He is our priest. And then we come to him as our king. He's not only our king who have put our faith and trust in him, but there will be a day he'll be proclaimed king of kings and Lord of lords, you can't impeach him and he won't resign. You can't destroy him or assassinate him because he'll rise again. He is the king of eternity. So the leader of the Exodus points to the Lord of eternity. In Hebrews chapter 3, you can read it later, it describes how God gave Jesus, the Father, sent the Son as one who is greater than Moses in his working and in his person. Because Moses was limited, but Jesus brings us completely to salvation. Then in Acts chapter 3, you find a New Testament picture of how the leader of the Exodus points to the Lord of eternity. Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching his second sermon after his sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has filled them and empowered them. He preaches one sermon, 3,000 people plus come to Christ. Now he's preaching his second sermon. He comes to verse 19. He's calling them to a commitment, which I've been calling you to, to put your faith and trust in Christ. This is how Peter did it. Repent, therefore, and be converted be transformed that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with the fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. See what the promise is? As good as the leader of the Exodus was, Moses himself, there is one greater and that's Jesus who leads us on an Exodus out of our sin into the forgiveness of the Father, not by our own merit or our own goodness, but by the goodness and the glory of the one who gave himself for us as the ultimate sacrifice. This is not a minor thing that we celebrate this season, is it? We are celebrating the eternal activity of God. It's not about all the trappings. It's not about all the shopping, all of that. All of that's fine to express love and concern for others, but don't leave Christ and eternity out of it. Make that the focal point. 
because Jesus is the focal point, not just of the Old Testament looking forward and the New Testament looking backward, but he's the focal point of eternity. And your eternal destiny has been purchased by Christ through the eternal plan of God if you will put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And I wonder, have you done that? Have you completely trusted Christ alone for your salvation? If so, in a moment, we're going to celebrate that fact, aren't we? We're going to come walking to this table today in the promises of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all through the Old Testament, all those promises coming together, and we have come to know Jesus the fulfillment of those promises. We come to celebrate his broken body and his shed blood for us. The greatest gift ever given, we celebrate that as followers of Christ. So today, if you do know Christ and you have put your faith and trust in him, you've gone public in your faith through baptism, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and partake of the table with us. But if there's something keeping you out of fellowship with God, you're a believer, but there is sin in your life, get that right with him and then approach the table lest you eat in an unworthy manner. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, we long for you to do that. I will be here at the front. I'll be back in the prayer room. Having been here for a while, go back to the prayer room. If you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus, would you come? Then as we come, we give to him in these receptacles up here not to purchase our salvation or make a down payment or an installment on it. It's paid in full. We give out of gratitude and obedience to God. And that brings us to a full expression of worship of the one who gave everything for us. Let's pray together. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.